What a wonderful word of testimony from our youth and from our children's ministries. You know, I don't know if you guys know this, but um, our youth and children's ministry are just amazing. If you get to know uh, the youth in particular, they're wonderful, goofy, crazy bunch of wonderful people who um, I'm quite jealous. They have like a youth group chat that they talk about the sermons. They talk about what happens on Sunday mornings on it. And I'm, one day I wish to be cool enough to be on that group chat. I thought about bribing them with food one day. So maybe I'll also work on that. Um, our children's ministry right now in particular, Megan's working so hard. Our children's volunteers are working so hard on putting together some amazing curriculum. Sometimes where our children and our families can get together and keep on growing in their discipleship. And I love the fact that we get to keep on doing that together as a church family. So what I want us to do this during, during this time of congregational prayer is we're going to pray for our children in our church and we're going to pray for our youth. This week in particular, uh, the children are participating in a virtual VBS. So they're going to be learning about construction sites and having Jesus as our firm foundation. Um, I think they have a visit from Dan the Foreman and uh, Lawrence the Load Operator and some other fun, wonderful people. Um, and then the youth actually at the same time, they were supposed to have their mission trip this week, but because of COVID, they switched it up and having their service week this week, where the youth will be learning about this community, serving areas in the community, and also serving with the VBS. So let's pray for both um, our incredible young people and the next generation that we have in our church. Waypoint Church, one thing before we even start praying, I just want to say this to you. Do you know that it is our duty as the body of Christ to disciple our children together? The Bible is very clear about this. It's not just the duty of the parents to raise their children. It's the duty of the church to raise all of our children together. So I want you to hear that. I want you to, those of you who don't have children, those of you who have grown children, those of you who are like, I have way too many problems with my own children enough. We're all called to disciple and help raise all of our children in this church body together. I can't tell you this, guys. You know what that means? That means we all get to be part of the awesome things that our kids are doing. I mean, for me, I look at our youth and I'm like, oh man, we get to be a part of that. I such, take such joy in that. I can look at them and say, those are our youth. And when I look at all these incredible, cute kids in our children's ministry, I'm like, the way they live and the way they are growing and the way they're speaking truth like KK is. I'm like, yes, we get to be, we're a part of that. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the amazing ministries that are happening at Waypoint Kids and Waypoint Youth. God, we thank you for the leaders that you've called and you've blessed and you've empowered by your spirit to lead so well. God, we thank you for Eric and for Megan as they take the lead. We thank you for all their volunteers and co-leaders. Holy Spirit, will you continue to flow into them as, you, as they um, overflow out to the youth and to the children? God, this week during VBS, I pray, Lord, that the kids hear over and over again. They're reminded over and over again that they don't ever forget that they are beloved children of the Lord, that you chose them. They did nothing to earn it. God, may our children who grew up in this church, may they always know the church as a safe, loving place, full of imperfect people, but an incredible Savior. May they know the church as a place where they can feel the, the warmth and the truth of community, and God, may they know that there's a place where they can always hear the truth about themselves, that, that yes, they are sinners, but they are so radically and passionately loved. God, may our children never know a day where they have to question whether they're loved by you. God, I pray for our youth 
as they're taking this faith that has been taught to them by their parents. God, may they now make it their own faith as they step into this genuine faith that we've been preaching about in James and may it be theirs that it overflows into good works and deeds that you prepared in advance for them. God, this week in particular, as they go forth this, this service week, may they learn the joys of serving others. God, may they, may they seek firsthand the, the, the wonderful calling it is to be to known by you, to be loved by you, and to be called by you to incredible purpose. God, that you have a specific call and task for every one of them, that you know them so well, and you love them so much that you call them to do great things in this world that reverberates to all the echoes of eternity. So God, may you mightily move in the lives of our young people. And God, we move in the lives of people of our church. God, we put it and instill it upon our hearts. God, may we take such pride and ownership over these young people. May it be on our lips to praise and to encourage and to lift up, to exhort, to spur on our young people. May we help our parents as they raise these young people. May we do this as a village and as a body together. Because that is the way you've called us to be in this local church community. So may we all pray for the next generation. May it be one that glorifies you and sees the gospel taken to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord from James 4, 1 through 12. What causes fights and what causes quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you don't have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you do ask God, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you would spend what you get on your own pleasure. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, anybody who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. That's why scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He, yes, He will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law. And judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. 
But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Waypoint Church. Hope you are all doing well this morning. My mother informed me this morning that some relatives of mine in South Korea are actually planning on either joining us live or watching a little later. So guys, we've gone global. Just throwing that out there. We as a church are in a sermon series going through the epistle written by James to the Jewish Christians he used to pastor when they're in Jerusalem. James speaks with a pastoral heart that is trying to get his people to live out wise and genuine lives. Today, we're continuing in the theme that James has been establishing over and over again from the very beginning. The idea that genuine faith, real faith, presents itself in real works and real life actions. It's this idea over and over again that it's not about what you believe, it's about what you do. Faith is your belief in action. It changes the way you live. So he's preaching genuine faith, genuine actions over and over again. Here in chapter four in the beginning has this idea flushed out that genuine faith is lived out in community. And I love this about James. James is such a practical guy. He's such a pra- he wrote such a practical book. He's not just talking about a hypothetical world where doing real deeds, but doing them in an isolated box. He's saying, do these deeds, live out your faith, but you're living it out in community. That's how he ends chapter three, this idea of peacemakers who are sowing peace. People are harvesters of righteousness. And then he goes to chapter four, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Do they come from your desires that battle within you? James has this idea that in right living, you control your tongue. You're living out your care for the widows and orphans. You have a genuine faith that looks different to the world outside. And he's saying this idea that if you're not, if it's not happening, if you're, if you're living in quarrels, if you're fighting all the time, if you're constantly in conflict, if you're fighting for your rights and desires all the time, then do you possess genuine faith? And guys, isn't that what we see nowadays in our culture? I mean, we look around and see this constant fighting over my agenda, my politics, my rights. I mean, we're having issues over masks and my right to wear a mask, my right not to wear a mask. We see issues of my body or a newborn baby being more important. Or we see constantly these issues over and over again of conflict, of fighting, of, fighting, of quarrels, of motivated things that are this whole my rights, my desires. And here in this passage, James is saying where this comes from. Your fights come from these desires within you. You desire what you do not have, so you covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. The idea here is that your motives is what leads to this outward quarreling and fighting. What's wrong within us is, is, is the outflow of these conflicts comes from what's happening inside our own hearts. I had a challenge one time that I gave my youth when I did youth ministry back in the day. I gave them all a cup of water full to the brim, a cup full of water to the brim at the beginning of youth group. And had them walk around and try not to spill what was in the cup. Imagine a bunch of youth hanging out, saying hi to each other, greeting each other, hugging each other, trying not to spill this water, right? They didn't last very long. It spilled everywhere. And as you go throughout your day, I mean, this is just impossible. If you imagine this cup, you're holding this cup. It's, imagine yourself hold, trying to hold this cup and trying to greet one another in this place or even at your house. Even just trying to walk from one place to another. It is really hard. If you've never done it, if you've never been a waiter or anything, it is really hard to keep a cup of water without spilling over that's full to the brim. But imagine you are this cup. And what happens is as you walk around, you have all this stuff inside of you 
right? Stuff that's going on in your heart and what's going on inside of you, and you're full. You're just who you are. You're just full. And as you walk around, and you're trying so hard to not get bumped, trying not so hard not to, to spill it over, trying not to tip over, not to let things happen in your life that makes what's inside of you come out. And you see, that's what happens. We see conflict and violence because what's inside of your heart inevitably comes out. We can't control it. You try to keep a good reign or good control of this cup, but it still inevitably comes out. And what James is saying is that what's inside our hearts is toxic. You see, I let the kids and the youth play this game because I put water in their cups, right? If it was like, I don't know, something like acid, I would not play this game because acid would be bad. Or anything that stained stuff, like red wine or something like that. I can play with water because I don't mind because I knew inevitably it comes out. Guys, here's the deal. Here's the situation. What's in your cup inevitably will always come out. Because life will make it come out. But the question is, what James is trying to get to is what's in your cup? Is it acid? Is it poison? Is it red wine that's going to stain everything? Or is it fresh water? The problem is most Christians, most people, what they do is they just work harder and harder at keeping this cup still. They work harder and harder. I just try really hard. Don't bump me. Don't be around the world. Don't be around people that set me off, but just harder and harder. But what James is really saying, what James is calling out, he's saying what needs to happen is you need to change what's in the cup. So that when you're bumped, what spills out is not anger and hatred and violence, but what spills out is grace and compassion and love. What's coming out is symptoms of what's going on inside. James has played the role of doctor for us, giving us a checkup multiple times in his letter. He's doing it again in this passage. He's saying, why are there fights and quarrels? Because in your heart, you're coveting. There's a heart issue that you're not addressing. Yes, fights and quarrels are bad, but make sure that you see that it's just a symptom about the real issue. I mean, almost all of us gets into fights and quarrels, right? I mean, is there anybody here in the last year, no fights, no quarrels, just peace in the East? Anybody? I want, to see, well, I want to see some liars in here. Especially, hmm, hmm. I'll ask your wife. Now, sometimes these quarrels are birthed out of legitimate wrongs, legitimate sins, legitimate harms upon us. Sometimes quarrels are legitimate, but not all fights are evil. But the type James is describing here is a type of conflict that's birthed out of a disordered heart. The conflict is not external, but rather internal. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? What causes quarrels? What causes fights? It's not really what's going on. It's not just COVID's fault. It's not your mother-in-law's fault every time. It's something going on inside of you. And really, the quarrels that are occurring have everything to do with you. It's not circumstantial. It's internally a spiritual reality. And here's the problem is that you think you deserve and here's the problem, right? You, you fight for your rights. And here's a quick sidebar, guys. Can we, I just want to throw this out there. Can we just stop and praise God that we don't get what we actually deserve? I mean, seriously. I think an issue that some people have is that they think they deserve all the good things they have. They've been good. They read the Bible. They go to church so God should bless them. They're better than those sinners out there. Those sinners still get a lot, so they should deserve more. So when they don't get the job, they don't get the girl, they don't get the promotion, they don't get the house. They look at God as if he didn't live up to his end of the bargain. But if we really understood what we deserve, if we really understood that we need to praise God that we don't get what we deserve, we haven't earned in any way the esteem of the Almighty or the gifts for his son who did all the work for us. 
See, guys, the problem is, is that we honestly think we deserve, we're that entitled selfish brat that thinks we deserve so much more than we actually do. The one who takes for granted every good and perfect gift that comes our way and thinks, oh, I did it. I deserve it. I deserve the sun shining on me because I'm so awesome. I deserve the promotion because I'm so great. I deserve every good and perfect gift so that when anything wrong happens, we start coveting, we start fighting, we start quarreling. And here's what James calls people who are suffering from disorder. He calls them, you adulterous people. The ones who are like this, the ones who are, who are self-entitled, the ones who, are, who think they deserve every little perfect gift who cause fighting and quarreling, he calls them adulterous people. You promise breakers, you covenant breakers. In fact, if we're really honest, some of us have made promises to God that we have no intention of keeping as we make them, right? Sometimes we're like, we try to pull this trick, God, um, oh, I'm, just forgive me this one time or get me through this one time, I'll never do that again. Knowing full well that we probably will do that again. This is how dark the human soul is. We are promise breakers at heart. And we see here, it says, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. James is using some heavy and extreme language here. For us, as we read this passage of scripture, we often forget that this is a pastor who knows and loves his people that he's writing to. He has been warning them to live genuine lives of faith and to be on guard to what that looks like. Then can you imagine how taken aback by this verse the people reading this would be? James is saying that fights and quarrels are because of a heart issue, and then all of a sudden he calls the people adulterous people who are friends or intimate with the world. It's like me emailing one of you and giving you some good counsel, and in the middle of it being like, and you, Joab, you cheating rat. I used to name Joab as a random name because I can say with confidence there's no one in the church named Joab. At least not now. I hope one day there will be. Maybe one of you guys who listen to this sermon might come up with the name and say, Joab, for your kid. We have a lot of pregnant people in our church right now. Joab, you're welcome. But this extreme language can take the reader back. James is intentional about this. He wants his people to see that intimacy with the world is like cheating on God. And what do I mean by intimacy or friendship with the world? It's different from how we often define friendship now. It isn't, it isn't just pressing the friend button on Facebook. No, friendship in the ancient Near East was deeper and more personal. It would often have effects through generations. It signified being known and garnering a sense of worth and belonging. What James is saying here is that if your sense of worth and you being known and you have a purpose is, is from the world, then you're finding it in the wrong place. You're seeking after the, the benefits and the, 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 the pleasures and the joys of marriage relationship, but not from your marriage. You become an enemy of God. Look at verse five and six says, or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealousies longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That's why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Now the jealousy of God is a confusing concept because when we think of jealousy, we tend to think of, think of things birthed out of fear, out of insecurity. When you're jealous, you're often insecure. That's definitely not at all how God is jealous. He's jealous for you for his own glory. God's jealousy is not built around, oh, look at all they have, I want what they have, or oh, why won't he choose me? You don't have anything. His jealousy is more, I put that spirit there, my glory is at stake, their joy is at stake. His jealousy stems from the love of his own name and hope that your joy in that name might reflect more of his goodness and glory. John Piper says it like this. 
God's jealousy is not the reflex of weakness or fear. Instead, God is jealous like a powerful and merciful king who takes a peasant girl from a life of shame, forgives her, marries her, and gives her not the chores of a slave, but the privileges of a wife, a queen. His jealousy does not rise from fear or weakness, but from a holy indignation and having his honor and power and mercy scorned by the faithlessness of a fickle spouse. And here we have this picture of someone rescued and ransomed and cleaned and cleansed and put in the place of honor who then betrays that rescue and runs back to her shame. The Lord is jealous for the spirit he gave us. He's jealous for us to experience the fullest of joy possible made only in knowing, loving, and following him. So James is calling these people adulterers who look to the world to find the answers of, of the, their longing for, and that leads to their strife and the covetedness. And so what's God's response to this type of adultery? What's God's response to this kind of blasphemy, this, this enmity that's being created? What's God's response to his people adult, uh, being adulterers and cheating and saying, you're not the king that I want, you're not the God that I want, I'm gonna go to the enemy, go to your enemy for my desires. James says this crazy sentence, but he gives more grace. One of my favorite verses of the Bible, but I'll probably say that every week. I feel like every other week I say this is one of my favorite verses. But this is, think about that word, that phrase, that sentence, but he gives more grace. James just spoke about how we deny God, deny his goodness, run away from his blessings, go back to the world. Then he says, but he gives more grace. Are you kidding me? It reminds me of the story of Hosea in the Old Testament and his wife. This prophet of the Lord who has his wife who keeps on cheating on him and going back to her old life. The text doesn't necessarily say why she does this. Maybe she doesn't feel like she deserves to live this better life. Maybe she forgets who she is. Maybe she's addicted. We don't know why. But Hosea pursues her and brings her back. But he gives more grace. My people, I don't know where you are today, and maybe I don't, I don't know what you, what's going on in your life and going on in your heart, but maybe you, you're like Hosea's wife here. You're running away from God, and you're making friends with the world, and you're turning away from the one who loves you, who's jealous for you. But he gives more grace, even for you. And what we're seeing over and over again in this passage of scripture is that our hearts are full of wickedness. Left to our own devices, we become friends with the world. But may this text this morning call you back into intimacy with the one who knows you, the one who loves you, and the one who's calling you into this beautiful, purposeful, satisfying relationship. My friend, for those of you who feel that you've run so far, that you've cheated so much, He's pursuing you, but he gives more grace. He promises us that. You've not gone too far. You have not run too far away. He pursues and has more grace even for you. Verses seven through 10 says then, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God, he'll come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. 
how are we to respond to grace being turned up as a response to our cozying up with the world? And going, forget you, God, I'll trust your enemies to lead me to the life fullest. How, do, how does God respond to that? How, what is God, how do we respond when God says, but I give you more grace? James says, this is how we respond to that grace. Submit. Let go. We have a hard time with this word in this day and age. Our culture cannot stand this idea of submit. We submit to no one because we're each our own gods in this culture, right? We submit to no one because we often don't need to in this culture. We're taught to be fully independent, fully powerful, fully autonomous, our own God, our own hero, our own savior. And James is here saying, do you want to live genuine faith? Do you want to respond to that kind of grace? Submit. Give it up. Quit trying to be king when you do such a bad job of it and the anxiety is killing you. Let God be king and you can have peace. As most of you guys know about this, this about me, but I hate putting things together. The idea of like building Ikea furniture is like the most painful slow torture in the world for me. I can't stand it. When Gina was pregnant, she wanted me to put together the crib while she was working on putting together pretty much everything else for the nursery. She, her only job was do the crib. It was bad. I, I, it was just miserable. I wept inside just looking at all the pieces and the instructions. So I did what I had to do. I called my friend and I submitted to him on the project. I handed it off. I said, here are the instructions, here are the pieces. Just tell me what you want me to do. One simple job at a time. Man, that felt so good. Whew. God is calling you to let go of being king of your own life and let him be king. Hear me very well. Willful submission is freedom. Willful submission to the right king is freedom. So we're to submit. But how do we submit? He gives us three ways here that we're supposed to submit. Three ways that we're called to submit here. Number one, we resist the devil. We resist the devil. 1 Corinthians 10 also says this, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so you can endure it. I love this because what the Bible is saying is that we have a legit enemy. We resist the devil. We have a real flesh in me that desires to rebel against the Lord. And this real enemy and this real flesh in me come together to pull a powerful pull of my heart that wants to keep me away from the Lord toward friendship with the world. And then God says, submit to me. How? It says resist. It's wartime language in this text. It's language in the Greek that connotes to aggressively stand against, aggressively fight. You don't run. You don't turn. You fight. You don't try to make it a safe ground. You pull your sword and you engage. You resist the devil. Here's what I know. I know that according to the New Testament, because the Holy Spirit is inside of me, I can fight and resist sin. Now, I will stumble. I know I will. But I can fight against. I can resist. And God's faithful to make a way. There's always a way for us. There's always more powerful help coming. Here's why I love this connotation for me, right? This idea is we fight against the devil. This idea of standing firm, taking this sword out, and be like, okay, I just got to resist. I got to fight. There's a brigade against me. There's a bunch of enemies against me. I just got to fight. And this idea feels overwhelming at first. There's this army against me. Satan and his powerful. The temptation of my heart is so strong. But here's the beautiful thing. The spirit is in you. He's fighting so that you have more powerful army in your back than you can ever imagine. When you bring forth your sword and you fight against it, when you resist, can I tell you that you have more powerful armies at your beck and call? You have a more powerful force within you. 
than all the armies of the devil. So when it feels like you're fighting against something that seems impossible, your battle is not just against flesh and bone, flesh and blood, but it's against principalities, but your powerful spirit that is within you is the same power that crushed the head of the serpent. We resist the devil. Two, you respond, you submit by one, resisting the devil, but then two, by pursuing God. It says here in this command, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. There's a promise you can't miss, you shouldn't miss. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. How do you draw near to God? I believe by two ways. One, by the word of God. One reason I love doing the Bible reading plan with all of you is this, this whole story of the Bible teaches us and strengthens us and helps us to see God more. We don't read the Bible for facts and figures, even though it's cool to learn all this stuff, but we read the Bible to gaze upon the beauty of God, to hear his heart, to know him better. And I want you to have the ability to open up the word and find that he gives more grace and let that fuel your belief that he is for you and not against you and let it stir up in you a zeal to see him for who he is and to be transformed by it. You're not, necessarily, you're not transformed by law. You're transformed, according to the Apostle Paul, by gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. And when you read the word and you see his plan and you hear his heartbeat and you see him, you see his incredible beauty fleshed out for you. I used to say this cheesy thing to my youth group. I'll say it to you guys. Is the Bible so often can also be seen as a love letter that God has written the world. Now that's not all it is. There's so much more, but one of the beautiful things that you can look at it and you see this heart opened up and revealed to us, his love letter to the world. In my mind, it's kind of the cheesiness part of me, the hopeless romantic part of me has this picture of like, like God journaling and writing like, oh, I love you so much. And, this is, and then I see this image or I see the image of like, like, a, like, a, of a, like God like with his guitar writing all these songs of love to us. Guys, that's what the Bible is. And when we look, I want you to gaze upon it and see the God's passionate love of you. I want you to see his beauty and his majesty. I want you to see his incredible redemptive plan and his glory. We need to pursue God by looking and diving into his word. And then we also pursue God by walking in community with one another. You draw near to God by getting to know God via the word, but you also get to know God via the saints. God has not called you just to himself, but he has also called you to us. Sorry, we're not all very good. A lot of those followers of Jesus are kind of messy. Smelly bunch. Yeah, I can imagine the disciples. I was watching The Chosen, the series, and I love that show. But one of the things that I just, I don't know why I thought of this, but one of the times that I thought about all these fishermen, they spent all night fishing. And I can't imagine most people smelling that good anyway. They're not wearing like deodorant all the time or taking sh- showers every day. So I just remember this one scene where they were all out fishing the night before, and then Jesus calls the disciples and says, Follow me. And in my mind, I don't know why I thought about this. I'm like, man, this guy should go take a shower first. They probably smell bad. I don't know why I thought of that. That's just how weird I am. God has called you to himself, but he's also called you to us, to each other, to the smelly bunch of sinners who, who God's called to be his followers. A smelly bunch of sinners who are imperfect, but called by a perfect savior to do this thing called life together. I've said this over and over again, um, but what God's called us together with that, that the Christian spiritual growth is, is a group project. 
It's not an individual project. It's not a lone project. It's a group project. Christianity knows nothing about being a solitary religion. It's meant to be lived out, fleshed out in community. That's what we saw in the very beginning, this idea of doing this in community, living your faith out in community. What you want are brothers and sisters who are embedded into your life. That means to those who are already members here at Waypoint that you need to be investing heavily in your relationships with each other. Humbly pursuing and encouraging one another. If you're with us today and you're not plugged in, if you're not a member of Waypoint Church, you're not plugged in, please, I need you to email one of us, one of the pastors, me, Danny, Eric, one of us at the church, and we want you to get plugged in because, guys, if you're out here listening to this and you're not plugged into a local body, you need to be. This is how you grow closer. This is how you pursue God, by being fellowship with the local body together. Hear me. Don't live an isolated life where you think because you read your Bible and you go to a church every once in a while, you're getting the best what God has for you. We are refined best in the furnace of community. We'll be exposed in our nature, exposed in our pride, exposed in our fears, and it doesn't sound very good, but it's in being exposed to the level that God sanctifies us and grows us. Being willing to be vulnerable in community, to grow with each other, is the place where God most grows us. Three, we need to be serious about sin. We're serious about sin in two ways. If you look at what he says here, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. I love this because he's saying not only are you to be serious about the sin that's kind of visibly around your body, your hands, but also be aware of how wicked and dark your heart and your mind is. Our watchfulness and seriousness about sin are not just about our actions, but also about our desires. James is saying, pay attention to your desires, take them captive, confess them, and then fight them in the arena of your mind. Be serious about sin. This is how we respond to but grace, is we're serious about sin. We're not only serious about sin, but we cleanse our hands, we pay attention to our mind. Uh, then if you want to talk about a couple of sentences that fly in the face of everything that we kind of Westerners embrace, we look at what comes next. It says, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. I'll tell you the way most people deal with issues of their heart is by escapism. It doesn't really exist if I don't have to think about it or deal with it. On a small scale, it's like paying the bills or doing that chore. Let me forget that, that it even exists by um, just kind of ignoring it. If I don't open the mail, maybe the bill disappears automatically. Let me forget the world exists by binging on Netflix. Another way, let me forget what I'm depressed, scared, and alone and going to die one day by focusing on the lives of celebrities over mine. I just want somebody to make me feel good. I want, I want to laugh. I want church to be that. Right? I want a church to be my escapism as well. But James is offering different advice here. He says mourn, weep, wail. Why? One of the things the Puritans would pray for is they would pray for tears. They would pray to be grieved by their sins. When they felt like the weight of their rebellion against God wasn't falling on their hearts, they would literally stop and they would pray and ask God to help them mourn about their own sin. I've never prayed, met anybody, honestly, praying that. When, well, typically, you know, that's not a typical prayer I hear. I don't typically say, God, I just pray you would crush me completely. Um, I've not seen my sin for what it really is, so will you just turn me into, you know, a heaping sob mess of weeping jello? No, typically, we want happy and chipper. 
We want to hear about how awesome things are. We want to hear about how there's a new heavens and a new earth coming. And let's, we just want to hear about all the good stuff. And we don't really want to be busted down to tears often. Yet it's often in the dirt. Being fully broken into a place of understanding what's at stake and what our sin does. And it's often in that place that God sends us true joy. The Bible tells us of a woman that was caught in adultery. She was dragged by a crowd and flung at the feet of Jesus. The men who caught her said, the law says we should stone her, we should kill her. She was caught in the act. She was ashamed. She's thrown in front of a mob that has dragged her to this rabbi and the law's on their side. The law says she dies and they look at Jesus and say, what do you say? And with tears and dirt and shame all over her, Jesus says, the one of you who's without sin, cast your first stone. The Bible tells us that the oldest to the youngest dropped their stones and left. The Bible says he walks over to her and he picks up her face. I love this. this for me, it's like the bleeding woman. He, in my mind, I picture he taking the bleeding woman by the face. He takes this woman by the face. He picks her up. And the son of God, the creator, sustainer of all things, picks up this guilty woman's face. Her guilt was never in question. It was visible for the world to see. But in the most shameful, despicable moment of her life, he looks her in the face and says, has no one condemned you? Neither do I. Go and sin no more. Can you picture her here? Can you see her tears? Guys, you see, it's in the dust. It's in the dirt. It's in the tears. It's our own heartbrokenness over our own sin that the forgiveness and grace of this incredible, loving God that it moves us even more. This in that moment in our dirt, in the sin, in our tears, when those words but grace ruins us, wrecks us, sets us soaring to new heights. Do you think this woman from that moment got up and moped away? No, she probably got up with trembling, but then with such joy. This type of grace penetrating this type of life brings us about a humility which God exalts. The humble God draws near to. The humble the Lord loves. You saw this here again. And here's the thing that's happening for us is that when we're in the dirt, when we're in the tears, we see, we embrace our estate, our truly lowly estate. And that is when we're set freer than we can ever be. Because here's the problem We put on so many fake facades, we put on so many masks, try to lift ourselves up, try to make ourselves seem good, but in reality is when we strip it all away, when we're vulnerable, when we're real, when we're honest, and then we let God meet us there, are we truly set free? And it brings forth a humility. And we're called to live it in this community. At the conclusion of this passage, there's two verses that I'd love to see as a challenge for us. It says, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges themselves against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? 
Now, the way the argumentation of James' letter works is now what he is saying is that those who have experienced grace, those who have experienced mercy, those who have mourned, those who have had their faces picked up by the Son of God, who understand he gives more grace, now become an expert, not in the weaknesses of their brothers, but in the strength of their brothers. They rejoice in the God-blessing movement of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Hear this, if this is you, if this is what happens, what with our mouth and with our lives, we should not tear each other down. We should build up. Can I ask a quick question to you? Are you more apt to see the shortcomings in others or the strength in others? Are you quickly to identify that somebody needs to grow up or are you quickly to celebrate what God is doing right where they're at? Are you quick to see, oh, they have so much more to go? Or are you quick to see, look how far they've come? I'm not talking about discernment, because there is spiritual discernment. That is so true, and we need spiritual discernment. I'm talking about judgment and condemnation. Do you feel the need to put others down? That might be a, a litmus test that you haven't experienced grace. You might have a concept of it, but you haven't experienced it. Are you more likely to speak life into others or to point out where others fall short? Do you speak life or do you speak death? Isn't that incredible that we have the power to do both? Do you speak life or do you speak death to others? James is arguing that where we talk, walk in true wisdom and understand the grace of God, quarrels and fights and judgments begin to dissipate. It's not that we won't have them because we always will. We're sinful, but we're quick to own our sinfulness. We're quick to seek forgiveness. If I've experienced grace, then I can absorb some sin against me. Can you imagine what would happen in the community of faith where what we are most of all experts on is in how to call out in each other what God is doing in their lives? What we're experts on is showing grace to each other. What we're experts on is forgiving each other. What we're experts on is speaking life to each other. May our words lift, edify, and encourage and give life to each other. Our words are so powerful. May we use them for awesome. For the lifting up of the name of the Lord and to encourage the saints. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your Holy Spirit's work is alive in us. God, that what you're doing is taking what is messed up inside of us and by grace changing it. So instead of in our cup, instead of carrying acid or poison, you give us fresh water. God, may that be what's in our cup. Will you continue to pour fresh water into us, maybe birthed out of the work that your Holy Spirit is doing in us so that when we are bumped, when we're pushed, when we stagger, when we stumble in life, what comes out of us is grace and forgiveness and edifying words. God, may we as a community of believers, may we as a church be known for the ones who give words of life, not death. God, may we be ones who are known for our forgiveness. May we be ones who are known for our words of encouragement. God, because we know but grace abounds. God, we love you and we thank you for that grace. 
that transforms each and every one of us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.